second down. Ryan takes the snap, goes to play to the left side. It's worth it. Welcome to this week's episode of Schemecast presented by 49ers Hub. My name is Jay. You can find me on Twitter at NFL. And I'm Rich. You can find me on Twitter at RichJMadrid. All right. NFL draft has come and gone. And the 49ers were able to land Nick Bosa at the second pick, which was nice because when they beat Seattle during the season, I uh, I know we talked about this, that it was potentially one of those wins that was nice at the time, but it could have cost the team, you know, a franchise-level player. But the Cardinals decided to go quarterback with Kyler Murray, and, and Nick Bosa fell into the 49ers' laps there, and they made the right decision. They didn't overthink it. Uh, Lynch had mentioned that they had Bosa and Quinnen Williams uh, similarly on their board, but they went with Bosa because he was a need, and Edge was absolutely a need, and the team has addressed it. They got two guys that can get after the passer, and, I, you know, I, I feel like it's a home run pick, man. I feel like this is the, the type of player that, that'll that'll change a defense. Yeah, he's a, he's a good player, man. Everybody who's been following the show for a while or following us on Twitter knows that we think that. Um, but, yeah, there was some concern that, should we beat Seahawks, we might not get a, a good player in this draft now at the very top, you know, because who, who knew how this draft was going to shake out? Uh, the Cardinals sign Cliff Kingsbury to be their coach, and the next thing you know, they're talking about Kyler Murray for three months going to the Cardinals in the draft, and it became uh, a reality. And we ended up with uh, the best pass rusher, edge defender in the, in the class, basically. Probably the best pass rusher, edge defender um, in a few years, you know, outside of, like, Miles Garrett or, or somebody. Um, but we were kind of... I was kind of sweating bullets that day, man. I, I was pretty... Pretty set that the 49ers would probably end up with Bosa, and then I convinced I convinced myself the day of the draft that we weren't going to get Bosa for some I reason. I started to, I started to too, because all these draft guys, yeah, hedging, hedging their bets and saying that now they weren't sure if Kyler was going to go to Arizona when they were sure for months. Um, yeah, and I think it was just a case of these bigger name draft guys that didn't want to be wrong. You know, like who cares? But. Um, Sure enough, you know, and then the Cardinals with the first pick make everybody wait to like, to like the ninth nine minutes and fifty nine seconds before they run the card up there. Yeah, um, and they they played it off really well. I mean, I, I just I was sweating bullets, man. I didn't know if we were going to get Bosa or not. Yeah, and it's you know if if Murray doesn't go at that one pick and they take Bosa, it's it completely changes the complexion of the of the whole draft. Because I mean, maybe the Niners would have taken you know Quinton Williams there at pick two, but with Kyler Murray on the board, I feel like there would have been some action there at that at that second pick, and they could have potentially gotten a future first and traded back, and then you know who knows what happens from there. And and so this was kind of one of those linchpin points of a draft where when the Cardinals take Kyler Murray everyone's board kind of falls into place, you know, with the Niners taking Bosa at two. And then, you know, the, the, the Raiders ended up taking their guy at four. You know, they maybe could have taken him a little bit later, but that's the guy they wanted. And it, and it, and it just kind of made the board board fall a little bit there. And, you know, I feel like the top ten, there wasn't a ton of big surprises other than the Raiders there at four. But, man, did some really good players start to fall, especially receivers and, and defensive backs. And, and there was there was guys to be had there there uh, in the second and, yeah. and third round. Man, that Friday, there was some really good value for a lot of teams. Yeah, and well, one of the other things that made some of these players fall was the – basically, didn't both Iowa tight ends go in the top 15? Yeah, they, everybody's chasing that George Kittle, man. <laughs> I mean – they're don't get me wrong, they're great players, but I mean they're not. I didn't think they were day one picks. Maybe very late, late round, but that's a lot of value to place in a guy who's going to be your sixth blocker, you know, in the run game and not be a primary target 
on some of these teams in the passing game right away. So I don't know. That was that was one of the more underrated aspects of why a lot of players like DK Metcalf fell to the third round and some of these other players that were projected to go in the first didn't end up going till day two or late day two, you know? So Yeah, the eighth overall pick to the Lions, they took the Iowa tight end TJ Hawkinson, which Yeah, and then Noah Fant went yeah, he went to the Broncos at 20. The Broncos traded yeah, back from 10. Top. Yep. But, that I mean, man, uh, if you draft a tight end in the top eight, man, I mean, that guy better be Gronk. You know, like. Yeah. I mean, you know, some couple, both these guys could be, man. They, they were yeah. really. Because Gronk doesn't get enough credit for being a run blocker or anything. But um, that that is just super high value to place in a in a pick like that. Yeah, and Josh Allen went one pick before the Lions. They could have potentially were hoping that Allen was going to fall to him because you know, yeah. God he would have been good in uh, Matt Patricia's defense. I know. Yeah, I bet you they were looking at him. And you know, Ed Oliver went a pick after them, and then you know, offensive tackle, a couple linebackers. So I mean, if he was the top on on their board, I I can see it. You know, you get a good tight end. I mean, the Niners know what a what a elite tight end will do to an offense but man a top 10 pick on a, on a tight end they, they've yeah. done it the lions have done it too with eric ebron and that they odell beckham jr was on the board when they took ebron yeah and ebron's not even there anymore <sighs> no he's in he's with the colts and he's he had a great see he had like he had like 14 touchdowns or something crazy with the colts um but i was so josh allen's josh allen falling to the Jags was surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, I've kind of figured. I kept telling a buddy of mine who's a, a Bills fan out in New York that I was like, "You guys should just take Ed Oliver and be done with it in the first round. Take Ed Oliver. Take Ed Oliver." He ended up going to the Bills, so I like to think I got that one right. Um, that was that wasn't surprising. I basically, basically Murray, Bosa, Williams, Allen, and Oliver going in the top ten was kind of what I felt. Outside of those picks, I didn't really have a clue about anything else. Um, I thought Green Williams. You didn't see Dan- Daniel Jones going six to the Giants. That wasn't on on your big board. <laughs> um, I, well, I, I hey, he should have uh, paid attention when they said that they were in love with Daniel Jones because of the Manning connection for some reason. But. A, a, according to Dave Gettleman, he knew that he wasn't going to be there at seventeen. So. Oh, <laughs> would have been there on Saturday, I think. <laughs> I just, you have to be wary of quarterbacks like that. that I know he's don't he's, make a name for themselves until the draft process starts in the off season. He's got that Jake Locker, uh, Christian Ponder kind of vibe going, you know, where it just seems like a reach. Ryan Tannehill, where it's a QB needy team who's just is like we got to get a QB. We're taking our whatever quarterback we like the best here so i feel like i feel like the redskins are the ones who made out there they had to they could just sit there at 15 and wait for haskins to fall in their lap did you see haskins laugh when they yeah oh that was that was a great video you could see him just like uh okay guys good luck with that like i i think haskins haskins or murray was probably quarterback 1a and 1b for me in the draft and i you know i didn't i don't think they're like they're not like the, it's not like past drafts like last year's or two years ago when Mahomes and Watson and everybody came out. I mean, they're they're going to be decent, I think, but you know, not. I, I don't know about Jones, man. He, they could have waited. What do you think of uh, DK Metcalf going? He went last pick in the second round. I mean, we, he was the last pick of the second round there too. And I and I said then that this. I keep saying it, man. It, this draft class for receivers was very polarizing. Every single receiver in the top 10 has been in somebody's draft board from all from as high as one to as low as 10, man. So you can look at anybody's board and the same 10 or 11 guys are in the top 10 or 11 and they're just in different order. Every, every single one you look at, um, who was Dane Brugler at the athletic head Metcalf as his number one receiver. Um, I know Brad Kelly, um, who's a receiver guy on uh, Twitter. He had Metcalf as his number one. 
Um, a lot of others had Metcalf as low as eight or nine. You know, they've got our guy Debo at number five. Dane does. You know, Debo in some mocks, or not mocks, but some big boards was like number 10. Um, there, I just, there wasn't a consensus across the board on some of these guys. There might have been a consensus on the top 10 or top 15, but as far as. Which I think just shows the depth of this class, too. There was a lot I, of really good receivers. I, there, there's a lot of receivers that have a lot, of, you know, have one skill set or another that, you know, analysts look at more than others, but. I mean, even Jalen Hurd was – he wasn't even in the top 15 on most boards, I don't think, anyways. So that th- there's more consensus back there than there is. Up- that was like three picks after Metcalf, too. It was like right uh, there. Dane Brugler had Hunter Renfro 31 on his – in his top 35 or 50 receivers or whatever he did. Like, you know, like uh, Nicole Hardman, didn't he go in the first round of the Chiefs? Um, let's see. Chiefs. First or second round, I don't know, but he was number thirteen. I, I don't know. It's just it, it's a very it was a very polarizing class, man. People a lot of people didn't like Metcalf because they he looks stiff when he runs. And, yeah, Hardman went to the Chiefs at fifty six, and then JJ right. Arcedo Whiteside went one pick after that to the Eagles. Yeah, and those guys didn't even crack the top ten in a lot of boards. So I think Arcega Whiteside was probably a little bit higher than that, but. I don't know. It's Nikhil Harry, you know, he to the, he the to the Patriots too. That's a good for yeah. a lot of these guys. Um I think wasn't probably Marquise Brown was the first one off the board, I think. Yeah, twenty five to the Ravens. Yeah. And then, then Harry after that, but I just I don't know, man. It, I thought it was a really good receiver class and I a lot of people might not have, but I just think a lot of people hated one thing or another about most of these prospects, whether it be their size or their um, their speed. Like Nikhil Harry is not a very fast guy. Um, DK Metcalf was a four three forty, but you know they think all he runs is a, a fucking go route half the time, and it's not true. But I don't know. I just getting this getting Metcalf in the third round for the Seahawks was an absolute steal because you're already going to be throwing the ball downfield with Wilson and I can't imagine how if you chasing Wilson around and he just unloads it downfield, he's going to find Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf somewhere open downfield because nobody's going to be able to cover them for that long. Now, one thing they didn't draft, we talked about how the secondary was pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty deep in, in the secondary and they didn't take a secondary player until the sixth round with Tim Harris uh, out of Virginia. It, it was, it was a bit of a surprise, you know. I, I I thought that they'd attack that position early, but I mean, what does it say about what this team feels about their secondary? I think it says that they didn't feel that there was anybody that they could take in the second or third round that could beat out a Kilo Witherspoon or right something. And which I, I kind of get, like unless you're gonna, you've got bigger needs at the first and second pick. You could make an argument. You could have probably taken, you know. Byron Murphy or I think DeAndre Baker won in the first round. Um, the, the, see, this wasn't even this was not a, a very good cornerback class, but you probably could have gotten Byron Murphy in the in the second round if you needed him. But after that, you're really just rolling the dice with some of these other guys that you th- you know you might not be confident can beat out one of your two starters already. So. From that from that perspective, I get it, and I think it'll probably be a a top concern going into the next draft. Um, yeah, it kind of has that same feel that uh, we had around the edge last off season. You know, where it was that position where it was like, oh, they're a little shaky. They didn't address it in either free agency or the draft. But I mean, it's it's a little different because they do have young players that they've drafted high. I mean, not top you know, first or second round, but, but with Akilah Witherspoon and, and 17 in the third round. And then, uh, uh, their third round pick in 18, I'm blanking on his name. The fast kid, uh, Traverius Moore. Yeah. Who they drafted and say that he's playing corner. He played corner last year. So that's two guys that they've taken to play corner in, you know, on day two of the draft, two years in a row. And, and if they, if they take a corner high, you know, first or second round, that's almost punting on those picks. 
And so, I, I mean, I get it. If, if they don't have a, a guy that they absolutely love sitting there in the first or second round, they weren't going to take a corner in the first round, obviously. Their, their, their pick was too high. If they had like a late, you know, maybe if, maybe if Bosa goes one and they trade back, you know, to, to late in the first round or something, they could have, they could have taken a, you know, a, a corner or possibly like, like Savage Jr. or something, the safety or Abram or, but, it it's just it's like you were saying it's just not how how it fell for him you know they're, they 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 love Debo Samuel he was sitting there in the second round they were probably biting their nails thinking he was going to go to the Patriots or the Falcons at, at pick 31 you know possibly the Colts maybe or the Jaguars and and he falls in their laps and they probably were were high five in the second they they were on the clock there at the at, at, in, in the second yeah. round when Debo was sitting there and yeah. it and then by that point, all the you know the top two or three corners are already gone. Right. Yeah. And then it then it then it pick in, in the third round. It just doesn't make sense. None of none of the guys were probably high on their board, and and they they don't dislike the young players. They have enough in the secondary to to try and reach for a guy in the third round. So what and, they're what they're really banking on with Tim Harris though is this just pure athleticism because he is a it's like an Adrian like, Colbert pick. He was somebody that came in really high on the spark, the three Sigma athlete scores for cornerbacks um, in their top 10. And that's basically just a measure of athleticism, combining all the the tests and traits that they have um, to give them a score. And he was number nine in there. Just feels like an Adam Peters pick, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, so that late in the draft... I don't know enough about Adam Peters to say that, but if that's a, if that's his pick, man, and it pans out at some point, he is. He's he's just, been on record saying that late in the draft, he is all about taking athleticism over anything. Yeah, late in the draft, that's why Adrian Colbert. He he just said they loved Adrian Colbert's size and his athleticism. Yeah, and that's what Tim Harris. Not necessarily the size, but the athleticism is there. Um, if that late in the draft, if that's if that's a good good plan to have, is to pick. If they don't do anything, one thing well on the field that you're looking for, they better be an athlete because no. you, can, you can teach the other things. But the real question is is who was uh, who was in charge of that fourth round? Who who was who was up on the table screaming for that fourth round pick? <laughs> I don't. Geez, this one, man. They they. I I was I was watching it. Uh, the fourth round, so that was yeah Saturday morning. So I was still kind of getting ready, and I hadn't really started to sit down. And I saw him talking about this was after the pick was made, and I saw him, uh, you know, discussing that a punter was taken in the fourth round. And I remember laughing like, "Oh, what fucking team did that?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh shit, it was, us. it was us!" Oh my gosh, I was I was at the gym and I looked at my phone when I was done, and I had a bunch of messages like, "A fucking punter, really?" And I was like, oh god. Oh man. I mean, he's awesome as a punter, but it's that va- it's the value of the fourth round pick. You know, if you take a if you take a punter in the fourth round, he better be a ten year player and one of the better punters in the league. You know, and if that's what he turns into, you know, I mean, great. I it's fourth round pick. If you go back and look at the history of fourth round picks, it's not exactly a who's who of you know NFL players, but is a mediocre punter more valuable than you know a, a special teams player, which is a lot of times what you can get in the fourth round? I would say no, but uh, if you have an, a, a like a top three punter who's around for a long time, I'd say that is definitely worth more than a than a core special teams player. But it's it's like risk reward kind of thing, and and they obviously feel strongly enough to think that he's going to come in and be. Uh, a great punter. I mean, we got to remember too. He's twenty-seven years old. He's not. He's not a kid. So in ten years, he's going to be thirty-seven. And I mean, obviously, punters can play for a while. But yeah, wasn't he playing in like an Aussie he, rugby league? Yeah, he was playing rugby, and then he and then he decided he wanted to uh, play football and and went to the Utah. This team man loves their rugby players and loves their injured athletes. <sighs> yeah, I don't know what it is, but I just man. I, just, you, I don't know how you justify taking a punter in the fourth round when there's still so many good players that could potentially come in and make an impact sooner than than just having a punter, you know, that may or may not be able to pin a team deep. 
I don't know. I, there's just no value to me in taking a kicker in the fourth round. A guy they could have gotten in the sixth round, probably. I don't know. People were saying that the Patriots might have had their eye on this guy, too. Okay, let him take him. Care. There, like, there's no way Shanahan team, was, like, high-fiving after where, this pick. Yeah. I mean, on a team where you have needs in almost every position and you need to find depth and players that can play, you just used it on a punter. That's kind of how how I felt after the pick was like, okay, is this this is almost them saying like we're that happy with our roster that we can start yeah. wasting not wasting wasting isn't the right word that we can take a punter in the fourth round outside of taking you know a guy with athleticism and production in college that could potentially you know come in and make an impact in the secondary or you know on the defensive line or you know maybe a guard or whatever so that's that they're looking at their roster going okay well we filled our all our holes here let's 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 just take take the guy who's highest on our board and 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 that guy was a punter so they took him yeah they i mean well the patriots would have patriots took a punter yeah but like the patriots the patriots just went to the super bowl yeah. The last two years. You need to find players right now in year three that are going to come in and make an impact. And the punter is just – just tells me that, like, maybe – and I doubt this is the case, but it's like, well, at least we have a guy now that can pin the offense deep when our offense can't move the ball. Like, that's just, just so ass backwards to me. And I, who knows what they were thinking and picking the guy, but it's just – Somebody in that draft room could not have been happy with that pick. And I don't know if Shanahan slapped the table on that one and said, yes, pick him, or it was kind of like... I feel like it was a John Lynch. Shanahan got his three three guys that he wanted yeah. at the front of the draft and didn't care after that, or who knows, man. But so he, it just feels like maybe they had to talk him into it. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the feeling I'm getting, but... And well, and we also got to talk about. Um, there was that report that came out. Uh, it was Matt Miller Bleacher Report, which it, yeah, which kind of ties into this. Yeah, which is talking about how there was some some. Uh, what's the best way to put it? It's not maybe a feud between Shanahan and Lynch. Where he said that he thinks that if that something doesn't, if they don't turn it around this year, that Shanahan will um, look to push Lynch and Peters out. Right. So it's essentially saying that that he's, you know, given Lynch and Peters and those guys a lot of freedom to, you know, pick the players in the draft and, and let he was letting those, you know, those guys scout and that kind of thing. And he wasn't Shanahan wasn't completely getting involved in this process, you know, which is what a lot of coaches do. They let their GM and their scouts do their job and then has their input in the draft and that kind of a thing. But, but Shanahan was, was almost getting in, involved a lot more than, than he necessarily wanted to be involved just because he was losing trust in his guys. And yeah, well, we don't and, know exactly why. I mean, right. And, and really Shanahan and Lynch, this was asked to them. They both were very quickly to say it's bullshit. And, and the reason why I'm kind of not believing this is because the, 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 beat reporters the guys that are really close to this like Mayoko came out and he wasn't necessarily disputing the report but he was saying listen I haven't heard this from anyone any of my sources and I feel like Mayoko is is more plugged into this team than anybody on the planet and if he's not getting any any sniffs like this I would doubt that there's anything going on more than the fact that this is a team that's won 10 games in two years has a one hundred and twenty-seven million dollar quarterback. They've their this is their third draft, and they gotta start winning. I think it's more of of not necessarily desperation, but like their their the intensity to win now is starting to ramp up. You know, in the first yeah. season they had kind of a buffer where the roster was really bad and everyone was expecting them to be bad. And then they got the quarterback, they won five games, and then going into this this last season, there was a little bit more of, oh, this is a good team that could potentially win and then obviously we know what happened with the injuries and it just just was kind of a failed season but now they got the number two pick they got Nick Bosa they've got another edge rusher they've they've moved on from some assistance and the quarterback is coming off an ACL but he's going to be healthy enough to go and it's kind of like the excuses are gone here this is a team that's got to win so 
there's probably a little bit more arguments going on. There's probably a little bit more of it's not it's not, you know, good job to everyone. We're doing great. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Well, now it's we got to be there now. And so the intensity is is just wrapping up and and that's just kind of how how life works. It's not always going to be smiles, rainbows and hugs. Sometimes you're going to fight with people that you work with. You're going to have arguments. You're going to disagree. You're going to you know, have, have issues in the workplace, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a toxic environment to work. That's just how, it, how, how, how life works sometimes. Sometimes the people you work with, you're going to fight with, you're going to have issues with, but it, it's really about how you solve those issues and, and, and that you can move on. And Shanahan or John Lynch doesn't seem the type that's going to hold grudges against each other because they disagreed. I think Shanahan brought brought Lynch in because he's not afraid to disagree with him and push him on certain things. And Adam Peters, I feel like, is, is the same way. And so I, I think it's more of a healthy thing that's going on there where they understand they got to win and they're doing everything they can to, to win. Yeah, that's basically what I chalk it up to. I mean, how many how many of us have worked in organizations that, you know, you didn't get along with maybe your boss or somebody else on your level and you've yelled at each other and had hashed everything out, hashed problems out and things like that. And that's kind of just what I chalk it up to is they're a competitive bunch of guys in that front office and, and girls um, because there are coaches on the staff that are, you know, female and they've probably all put their input in and given their opinions on where they think the team needs to go. But at the end of the day, um, the way it was portrayed by, by Matt Miller, who I am no fan of at all, um, is that Kyle Shanahan is in a power struggle. And there's a couple things that are wrong with that. Um, number one, Kyle Shanahan is the man in charge. Yeah. Is it, wasn't it Tim Kawakami that said if he wanted Lynch gone, he'd be gone already. I think it was Kawakami that. It's Middlecoff or Kawakami. Yeah, maybe it was Middlecoff. I think you're right, Middlecoff. There's there's no power struggle. Like Shanahan, outside of Jed York, Shanahan is the number number one guy controlling that team, that roster, that coaching staff, that scouting staff. Um, everybody works for him. So if he wanted if he wanted Lynch gone, he could snap his fingers today and Lynch would be gone. Peters would be gone. Everybody would be gone that he wanted gone. Um, they've already done that this year with a couple of coaches that they let go and, and brought new ones in, and we've talked about those guys already. Um, and the other thing, too, is at the same time, I kind of probably believe there is some tension in that building. I mean – I would be shocked if there's not. I would actually be yeah, worried exactly. if there wasn't. These guys know that they're under the gun this year. Um, they also know that they're not going anywhere until their six years is up because they're not going to pay – two guys to be there their full salary if they were to fire them at the end of the next year and they're still paying two coaches they're still paying chip kelly and jim tom sula yeah so they're they're they're, it's not in the cards for them to go anytime soon so I, i think i think you know if anything shanahan is getting impatient with what has taken place over the first two years um and that's normal man the guy i mean the guy he has his quarterback you know, he's got his offensive weapons. He's now he's got his, you know, apparently he was beating the drum for Nick Bosa back in September after Garoppolo got hurt and the season was getting away from him. He was like his number one advocate, you know, as far back as last fall. He's got his pass rush. Um, it's time to go. They need to, you know, and he knows that. He, they need to get it in gear this year and they need to win more than six games and they need to show that they're taking the next step um, because, you know, things are going to start getting the, – the leaks are going to start happening probably next year if they don't. And he's not going to be able to control that because people are going to be disgruntled. People aren't going to be happy that they're losing. Players are going to start talking. Um, I firmly believe that. I mean, that you can't you can't go three years into a – a staff change and a roster change and people just don't start talking, you know, because they love the culture or whatever the culture for two years has been losing. And that's not all their fault. You know, they lost their quarterback last season when things were looking, things were looking up and, you know, at some point people are just going to get sick of it. Um, And so people probably will start talking next year if they have a bad season again, but 
so, you know, I think Shanahan knows that, and he is doing everything he can to stop that. And as far as him not being involved in the draft process or anything like that, I, I, I don't buy that because ultimately none of the decisions around the draft or the players they take happen without some of his consent, I would think, if he's the man in charge. Um, and he was already getting into the draft stuff last season during the season. So, you know, I, I just, for whatever reason, Matt Miller is a Trent Balky guy. He was, a, you know, he had a lot of contacts in that regime when Balky was around. Um, a lot of stuff got from, a lot of stuff, if it came through Matt Miller, was, you know, you knew it came from Balky just because of the relationship he has with him. Um I'm not a Matt Miller fan, but at the same time, you know, there's probably some truth to what he's reporting, but most of it I think is just fluff. Um, stuff that you kind of already knew was probably going on that they're probably not happy with the direction the last two years have gone, but I don't think it goes any further than that. All right, so let's dive into some of these prospects. I, I want to get into probably the first two days here on some of these guys that they took. Let's start with uh, the number two pick there, Nick Bosa, who you talked about Kyle Shanahan has been advocating for for a while. And you could tell when uh, – I don't know if you saw the video of when they called Bosa to let him know he was going to be the pick. Um, you could tell Shanahan's had a lot of contact with Nick Bosa just by the way that he was talking with, with him. You could tell they've had some in-depth conversations. And uh, so I think he was he was the guy the second that Kyler Murray was, was most likely going to go to Arizona. I think it was pretty set in stone what was going to happen there. So I think Nick Bosa, uh, he's, he's, he's the type of player that's going to change a defense, man. I think he's, uh, he's really, really good in the run game. He's a, he's a smart player. He's uh, he's got some good pass rushing moves. He's he's got speed to power. He can he can. He's not necessarily that real bendy edge player, but he's he's a lot like his brother, man. He's got a lot of power. He's got speed. He's good in the run game, and and I think he slides in. Um, uh, probably probably gonna play the Leo with D Ford on the other side, and but but I don't think they're necessarily just gonna stick him on one side consistently. The, they like to move guys around a little bit. So so, what are your thoughts on Bosa? Where he's gonna fit, and and how you think he's going to do on this defense? Um, I think he's the perfect fit. Um, at Ohio State, he played a lot of wide nine, a lot of uh, you know the technique spots outside of the tackle. That's based primarily where he rushed from. I think it, in his sophomore or his freshman and sophomore years he lined up you know a little bit on the inside you know maybe the three or the four um and rushed from there but that's when you know that's when he was just starting out as a as a player for ohio state but he primarily racked up all his production from that uh that i guess what ohio state would probably consider their strong side end or big end or whatever um he I'll disagree with you on one thing. I do think he has a lot of bend. Um, he has a little bit more of a compact frame than you want to than you want from a pass rusher. Was it someone like Josh Allen who has just a huge reach? Um, he didn't come in super high with his what they call it, the wingspan. I think he was only in the twelfth percentile, so that's that's pretty low. Um, but it doesn't matter, man, because when you watch him on film, he actually kind of uses that to his advantage when he can dip around and dip under players and get inside of an offensive lineman's frame. He doesn't necessarily need to have a long reach to hold off a, a blocker um, because he's so efficient with the way he uses his arms and his hands anyways that by the time an offensive lineman drops back in their pass set, I mean, you're the offensive lineman more often than not has already had his arms or his hands swiped away by Bosa, and he's just bending around the edge um, to get to the quarterback because he's that fast. Um, he is a guy that when you watch him on film and he, you watch the way he sets up his pass rush, he's, he's constantly thinking about his, what his next move is going to be and what the, how the, the tackle is reacting or whoever's blocking him. Um, he doesn't go in with a set plan. Like I'm going to rush this way this time. Um, he kind of just, he sees how the, the tackle is going to play him and he sets up his rush from there. Um, there's plenty of times where you can see this on film when, he kind of gets into like a stutter to figure out which way he's going to go. And then if the tackle is inside, he'll just kind of give an inside move and beat him around the edge. 
Um, if the tackle sets deep and he can't get around the edge, the next best thing he can do is just bull rush a guy because he's so powerful. Um, he had a, he played a lot of really good tackles in the Big Ten. And then he played, you know, against Oklahoma, um, TCU outside the conference and things like that, USC. And he just he, – he had good battles with a lot of guys he went up against and won a lot of battles. I think we said last time he had – the highest win rate over his career out of any defensive uh, defensive lineman prospect in the last four years, something like a 25% win rate. Um, that's just getting into the backfield, you know, beating his blocker one every four snaps. Um, that's, that's pretty good. And that usually uh, pro football focus has kind of correlated this to uh, the NFL and, and that the pass rush productivity in college carries over, at a correlation of probably 0.7 and 0.1 being like perfect correlation or not 0.1, uh, the whole number one, 1.0 being like the perfect correlation between, um, productivity in that regard. So it it translates pretty well. So I think he's going to be a dominant player for the 49ers as long as he's there. Um, he's got a lot of pass rush moves. You can, just I'll just go through the list of some of them. He can cross chop. Um, he can. He's got a great, a great swim move. He's got a two hand swipe. Um, he uses a wrong arm technique very efficiently. And I've got all these diagrammed or, or um, highlighted in an article I wrote on him last two months ago. Actually, now at this point, I think it was early in March um, that we can throw up in the show notes. Um, he's got a just basically any rip, every rip move you can think of. Um, and then just the way he plays, he's got a high motor. He's pretty relentless. He doesn't give up on any plays, especially plays that come right at him. Um, and then, then then there's run defense, you know. And I always say, you know, the, the mantra lately is run defense doesn't really matter in the NFL anymore. But he can play efficient run defense. Um, he never gets caught up with blockers. He can get out of jams real easy. Um, I've, he, spin, he just spins off blockers. His spin move is just unreal for a guy like him um he can read the play really well you know you were saying before the show that he was just blowing up jim harbaugh's run game in one of the michigan games a couple years ago um and even when he's not you know in on the tackle he is someone who can still affect the run game because he plays sound run defense and his run fits um there's a play that i have in my article where he rushes um, the B gap. I think it's the B gap here. Now it's the yeah, it's the B gap, and he out leverages the blocker and forces Bar- Saquon Barkley to to change direction and cuts right back into the middle of the defense and just swallowed him up. So he he might not necessarily make the play, but he is someone who can just completely reset that line of scrimmage for his defense and uh, make him make the defense a little bit more you know formidable in that aspect, but. Um, I don't really have any – I don't really think there's any flaws in his game where he needs to improve anywhere. I think he's I, – I, I typically try to stay away from the is he at his ceiling or is he – can he even get even better? And I, he's in the NFL. He's going to get better. He's going to get more efficient against some of these, you know, better tackles in the league because he's going to – he's going to have to, and there's no reason to think that he won't. Um, so I typically try to stay away from – you know, a lot of a lot of analysts have said he's at his ceiling now, and I, I don't buy that. Um, I think that's kind of a dumb, a dumb uh, analyst take there. But I, I just think he's going to get a lot better than he is now. And even if he doesn't, like he's still an elite player who's going to who's going to beef up this front. You know, in the passing game especially. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that take either. It's almost like like making uh, the fact that a, a prospect is is pro ready and and is ready to make the jump into the NFL uh, uh, like very seamless. Making that into a negative, like oh they've 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 reached their peak compared to a guy who you know <clears throat> has the physical skills but hasn't quite put it together and go oh he's a raw player that's that's you know has a really high ceiling. Yeah, I'd I'd rather take the guy that that has had success and is looks like a polished pro like Nick Bosa does, man. Just like you were saying, he looks like a guy that he's just an all around good player. He's like you were saying, he's really good in the run game and that Michigan game. He, you could, 
he was just he's just a smart player in the run game he's patient he doesn't he doesn't uh solomon thomas himself through the gap and get a little little too antsy he he will let the play come to him make a play or if he has to he'll blow up a blocker and get into the backfield and make a play in there and i think the you know obviously the the his strength i think is his power is his is his biggest strength i think he's just a really strong guy he can push push guys around but i was surprised at how fast he was you know, going into watching the film, I didn't watch any film before we took him on Bosa. You know, I'd seen him on Saturday's play, and I knew he was a good player. I'd seen highlights, but I'd never really watched like a snap after snap of games of Bosa. And I was surprised at, at how fast he is, man. I mean, he's got speed off the edge. He just he just mostly wins with power, but he's got a bunch of different moves. And he's just a he's just a nuisance on every single play. Every single play, the tackle was having problems with him. You know, and, and if and if a tight end got it on him, it was just like no fucking chance. Like I, I, there was a couple times in that Michigan game where, where a tackle or a tight end got on him, and, and the guy just it was like it was like a, a senior going up against a freshman or something. It was wild, and so I think Bosa is just. I mean, you, you don't want to say say can't miss prospect, but I would be shocked if he doesn't come in day one and he's I, I mean he's not going to come in and, and have 20 sacks his rookie year you know that's, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen but he's going to come in he's going to make the defense better it's a great situation for him because the 49ers have DeForest Buckner there they traded for D Ford and this is great for D Ford too because he D Ford doesn't necessarily have to be that number one pass rusher D Ford can kind of you know, play off of Bosa, and one game Bosa will be the guy. The next game, D. Ford will kind of get more pressure, and and it's you know, offensive lines are going to look at this defensive line with Buckner, who had 12 sacks last year, with D. Ford, who was one of the best players in the NFL at creating pressure, and now Nick Bosa, who is a guy that you can't ignore with with the power and the technique and the moves that he has you can't ignore this guy offensive lines are going to look at this and go like who are we going to double team what are we going to do here if you got if if your offensive line has strong tackles but has weak interior DeForest Buckner is going to eat their lunch because they can't they can't have help in the middle you know and if it's the other way around the, the the edge guys are gonna gonna have a field day on the tackles and it's just gonna it's just gonna completely change the complexion of this defense this pressure that this defensive line is going to get is going to create more turnovers it's going to create more three and outs it's going to give kyle shanahan more chances at 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 his as getting his offense going it's just going to completely change change this team and i think this is one of those picks that we're going to look back and and you know in a couple of years and if this team is is winning we can go okay this is really where the defense got that last piece that they needed to to make that next step yeah, and you want to talk about speed. Um, there's a, a play. There's several plays in his career where he lined up at the what we would consider the nine technique spot, and one in particular that stands out is a play against um, USC in the Cotton Bowl in 2018. He is at the very clearly at the wide nine spot, um, outside the tight end shoulder, outside shoulder. And he gets to Sam Darnold at the, from the snap to the time he hits Darnold in less than 2.4 seconds. And that's wow. a lot. That's that's about 10 yards to cover. You know, he's almost coming from I'm, – I'm just looking at the play right now. He's in the middle of the field, and Darnold is on the other side of the hash, and he gets there in less than, you know, two and a half seconds and makes the sack. And that's after bulldozing through two blockers the tight end and the running back um it just didn't slow him down and, and in fact if it did slow him down he probably gets to the quarterback in, you know maybe about two seconds flat um it's just incredible speed you know it's one of the things that really sticks out and one of the one of the areas where i think he's really going to have an impact is on that is in that wide nine spot with him and ford on the other side and it's it's going to be a race to who can get to the quarterback quicker um we we say all this now, and when we have we can't we can't let the fact that he had an injury that kept him out of most of last season. Yeah, the uh, injuries I think are the number one concern for sure. Yeah, and that is the, that is going to be the concern with a lot of fans. A lot of fans think he's injury prone. They think that family is injury prone. But I mean, Bosa's his older brother has had two really solid years um, in the last couple of seasons where he's. I think racked up. You know, you if if Bosa if Nick Bosa has 
these kinds of years in the first two years, like I don't think anybody can really complain no. about it. But just for perspective, Joey Bosa, um, he missed. He he sat there. out. He sat out his first four games because of a contract dispute in his rookie yeah. season, and so he still won still defensive had, rookie of the year. Still had ten and a half sacks. Two thousand seventeen, he had twelve and a half sacks. Last season in six games, seven games, he had you know six sacks. So. The dude is insanely productive for the Chargers. Um, and there's no reason to think that his younger brother won't be the same for the 49ers. So even and, if and the Chargers don't have DeForest Buckner either. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, their defensive line now isn't as good, probably as talented as what the 49ers have. They just the 49ers need to put together. But the injury concerns with with Nick Bosa are that he sat out for an abdominal injury. Okay, but I mean. I think I covered this last time. You know, we I should say first, we don't know how any of these guys are going to do in the pros. I mean, a lot of this projection stuff is kind of just fluff to me. Um, unless you're a top two or three player, you just know that this guy's going to be what everyone says he's going to be. Um, and I do, th- I kind of think, I do think Bosa is going to be that player for us. But, you know, no, nobody knows how any of this is going to affect his first year with the injury he had last year. Um, and it is a concern for a lot of people, but it should be noted that he sat out. He chose to sat out after the doctors told him that he would be cleared to play, you know, late season, you know, those late season games in November and then in the bowl game. And he chose not to. So he chose to spend his time getting ready for the draft and everything. Um, so I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. I don't think the injury is going to hold him back. You know, they did. In rookie minicamp this past week, they limited him to one-on-one and individual drills. They didn't have him in the 11-on-11s at the end of practice. Um, and that's just because they want to ease him back into all this stuff. And that's perfectly fine. I mean, they know He, he hasn't signed his contract either, so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he's like, eh, I haven't signed my contract yet. I don't want to get hurt. That's true, but th- there's no... No one has said anything to that effect that I've seen. Right. Debo Samuel hasn't signed his either. I think they've signed everybody but the first two picks. So that's to be expected. Those contracts are a little more detailed. And you know that the, the, money, the money is not the issue. It's how they structure it to get all the cash in there. And the, the players want, you know, the players and agents want it one way, the team wants it another. And the 49ers are that team that really likes to structure those things in a different manner. He's got the same agent as Solomon yeah. Thomas, and if you remember, Thomas signed Thomas his contract. Gucci, right? I think what? she had the same issue last year. Yeah, they they literally signed their contract like a couple of days before Training. camp, and and yeah. just I remember Solomon Thomas signed his contract and ran out onto the practice field. Yeah, for training yeah. camp hopefully it doesn't take that long this year but it's also the same agency that represents uh joey bosa and everybody remembers the contract dispute there so. yeah that was that was the big thing with them was the offset language and i don't think the niners have too big of an issue with that yeah and so but but there will be probably if you know i don't know when the deal will get done it'll get done eventually but you know it's it's going to take time with that agency. It's it's just, it's a common thing with the players that are represented by that group. All right, let's get into Debo Samuel. Um, he was the early in the second round um, wide receiver out of South Carolina, and man, this guy's a lot of fun to watch. He is uh, just run this dude on slants every play. I think. <laughs> yeah, that was one thing that stood out to me after I <laughs> just run the dude on slants every time he's going to get like like. 16 yards after the catch it's wild i could see shanahan watching that and just just rubbing his hands together like oh baby yeah bring it here i love this guy and he's just a lot of fun to watch man he wins in in multiple different ways he's quick he's he's really good after the catch and that's shanahan loves that and uh i've heard some people say i don't i don't know exactly who but i heard people talking about how some some experts had him slated as a slot receiver which is the exact same uh, moniker that uh, Dante Pettis had last season at this time and I mean that's just not true he lined up on the outside I mean, he lined a up. ton he lined up all over the place he definitely played some in the slot but he's an outside receiver he's going to be outside Shanahan will move him around a little bit but he's definitely think he played most I think he played mostly on the outside I have to go back but he didn't he played a lot in the slot, but he didn't have – most of his production didn't come from yeah. the slot, if I remember correctly. Um, 
he was definitely more in the in the progressions of the quarterback or at least on on you know the first read when he was outside i feel like that's where he did the majority of his damage was on the outside um i think so but, but the well where he did the majority of his damage was after the catch yeah after the catch yeah he, he had nearly 600 yards after the catch that's um, sick. 62 catches so that's like george had, kittle style after the catch numbers it's crazy he uh so in his senior year, he had 62 catches for 882 yards, 500, it's in, and it's in my article I just put up a few days ago on him, 592, according to Pro Football Focus, 592 yards came after the catch. Um, and in some of these, it's not like he's catching just, you know, a quick slant and taking it to the house or whatever. I mean, some, I mean, a few of them he does, but they do throw to him deep. Um, he was used as a deep target a lot. And that's primarily where he made his money. It was just he'll go up incredible. and get the he'll go up and get the ball yeah. too, man. He will fight for the ball in traffic like that. He's good at the catch point. He's tough. He's not a big receiver, so he doesn't have. You can't just throw, you know, a, a really bad pass and expect him to come up with it. Um, you know, kind of think like of the you know you can go back to the Garoppolo pass to Pettis and against Minnesota where he threw that interception. Um, but if you do put it in his general vicinity, he does have the ability to get it. I think he had a 39-inch or 40-inch vertical at the combine, which was, uh, um, you know, about the 90th percentile um, for receivers. So that's really good. Vertical, oh, 39-inch vertical jump, 87th percentile. So I was close. Um, and he, he's a guy. Yeah, like you were saying, like I did up all my my videos of him in my article and I'm like, God, this guy runs a lot of slants. Everything he catches is like a slant. Um, but that's just the nature of South Carolina's offense. They're a heavily spread RPO offense. Um, and that's what he was asked to run. He was asked to run something that called the, uh, we call it the tap pass fly, which I'm not really a big fan of it. And it, it really kept him from being a top, you know, two or three receiver in this class in terms of production because of, the amount of times they ran this play with him. And it's a play where they send the receiver in motion on a fly motion. And at the, at the snap, the quarterback basically catches the ball. And the thing that makes it a forward pass is he just basically pushes it forward to the receiver on the fly motion to catch it. Um, and it counts as a reception. It's not a running play. It looks like it should be classified as a running play, but the fact that the quarterback pushed the ball forward uh, makes it a forward pass. And so he had about, 10 or 12 of those receptions. And you're I, feel not like, I, feel like, I feel like Patrick Mahomes threw like 10 of those last year for yeah, touchdowns. He, <laughs> he, he probably did. He, he had a quite a – they run that play a lot with Mahomes. Yeah. But, you know, 10 or 12 of these on – of his 62 receptions were on that play where if they had just thrown him the ball downfield, he would have eclipsed 1,000 yards receiving easily. Um, he still had 11 touchdowns, which is, you know – touching get you know a touchdown every five times he touches the ball so you can't say he wasn't efficient there um and then he brings a lot of versatility to special teams he can cover um, he can get downfield to make a play on the on the kick returner or punt returner i think he had four four kick return touchdowns in his career he has on a play against akron he had a on a punt coverage team, the kick returner muffed the ball and he recovered it in the end zone because he's just that fast to get down there to, to make that play. Um, he's not a guy who will burn you with, you know, top end speed, but he is still pretty, pretty tough to bring down after the catch and he will rack up a lot of yards before he is tackled. Um, he's, he's what, you know, Croc and, uh, Brad Kelly call a nuanced route runner. Um, he has a very good understanding of defender leverage on certain pass plays and routes he's running. And he will oftentimes use that, you know, kind of the same way we were talking about Bosa, same way Debo runs his routes. He, he will just use that leverage to out leverage the defender. Um, so if a defender thinks, so like on one play in particular, a defender was lined up inside and he jumped further inside to take away Samuel on the slant and all Debo did was still threatened and press the outside shoulder of the defender 
defender widens, turns his hips to run, and then Debo just cut underneath him. Like this is a guy that's in inside of him too, and cut underneath him on a slant for a touchdown. Um, he's just an incredible, in, incredible the way he can create separation, and I think that is what Shanahan is really looking for in him. He's not again it, with Shanahan. It's not so much speed. It's a guy you want to. He wants guys that are going to create separation and guys that are going to get yards after the catch. And, and Debo is that guy. Yeah, this is definitely uh, this is definitely one of my favorite picks in the draft, and he's a lot of fun to watch. I think I think Shanahan's going to have a lot of fun scheming this guy up. He's definitely not just going to be running slants. I can see him running the the dig on Yankee concept and. Oh, you know, he'll run with the post on the Yankee concept, he uh, yeah, he'll run the post for 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 seven or eight times in a row, and then and then he's gonna run the dig on the on yeah. the. Uh, you remember, you remember he they Shanahan started doing that with Goodwin, where he was running the post every time on Yankee, and then there then then like like three games in a row, he he just had him running the dig, and teams were just biting on the post and. Yeah, he's him. Him and Pettis, I think, are just going to be a, a a fun fun duo with with Kittle being the, you know that that tight end in the middle, and hopefully Trent Taylor can come back and start playing some slot. And I think we're just starting to see the the view that Kyle Shanahan has of his offense. You know, he's people have been talking about getting that big bodied receiver that can jump up and and get those 50 50 balls and that's just not the way that kyle shanahan looks at receivers he likes guys that can get open he likes guys that can run routes and and can get yards after the catch and and debo samuel i feel like is is the perfect shanahan receiver and he's going to play on the outside a lot he'll move him around and i I can see him having a similar uh, impact that dante pettis had last season and you know we're hoping Pettis makes a jump, and this could potentially be an offense for Garoppolo with a lot of weapons. And I mean, what, what do you, how do you how do you think Debo's going to do his, his rookie season here? Is is he going to be is he going to be you know a guy that gets a lot of catches or? I think because so. I mean Jimmy's got a lot of options. I think Pettis is going to make a jump with you know obviously George Kittle's got to get his, and and we got to factor in the running backs coming out of the backfield. But I think there's enough there's to go just, around where. Yeah. He he can catch like 30 40 balls and you know get some touchdowns and 6 700 yards. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, it's we're at the point with this offense right now where they're going to be spreading the ball around a lot. And there's going to be games where guys stand out more than others. You know, maybe they target one guy more in a in the next game than they did in the previous game, but I can easily see a situation where the only way he surpasses Pettis's production last season is he stays healthy all 16 games. Um, but, you know, you're looking at a guy who's going to catch six, seven balls a game probably, um, you know, in that range. And that's that's perfectly fine. And that probably a lot of his targets might come in the red zone because that's where he was a big threat with the with the Gamecocks was downside the 10-yard line. Um, you, you try to press the guy. And, you know, if you don't get a hand on him, you've already lost the rep. And that's true with – pretty much every single rep he has against press coverage anywhere on the field. Um, and I think that's really one of the things that drew Shanahan to him was the fact that, okay, if this guy beats a press defender and you don't get a hand on him, he's going to be open. There's just no way about it. You, if you got a quarterback with a quick release, you can get the ball inside a tight window and Debo's going to catch it 10, 10 out of 10 times like he did for Carolina. So um, you may see a situation where they're using – Pettis and Kittle between the twenties to get them downfield, because um, Pettis still does have kind of more of that breakaway speed and that ability to, you know, run across the field and um, get yards after the catch in that area. And then they use someone like Debo or Pettis or Kittle inside the tens as their primary production targets. Um, oh, I mean, who knows? There's so many possibilities they could do. I mean, they they could line them up in the slot. They could use that stupid little fly tap tap pass fly crap or whatever and get him out on the edge i mean there's so many things you can do with this guy and it's hard to project one way or another where he'll slot in but i think the primary i think the consensus is right now that probably the z receiver spot which is what garcon played um is where you're going to see him and that but even that receiver spot still you know it, it is a possession receiver spot but he still does run deep routes he's they run they run a variety of routes with that spot so you know, I, I think you're getting a guy that can pretty much 
do everything that Shanahan wants. Um, and I think that's the most ideal situation for them. Um, I don't think we should try to pigeonhole him into doing, he's going to do this here and that there, but you can see situations in his college tape where, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Shanahan uses him the same way there just because he's so efficient at what he does. All right, I will put uh, the Debo Sam your Debo Samuel and Nick Bosa article in the show notes. So if anybody wants to check that out, just go into the show notes and uh, uh, you can click the link there and check that out. Um, we will get to Jalen Hurd and the rest of the draft in our next episode, and we'll probably dive into a little bit of the undrafted free agents. I haven't even looked at the damn list, so I don't. I know they've signed a bunch of guys, so we'll, we'll have to look at that and get into maybe a couple of them that we like. Um, you got anything else you want to add uh, before we wrap this thing up? Maybe a uh, uh, little, little Josh Rosen to the Dolphins. I know we didn't mention oh, that man. early. That I forgot. So, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> so dumb. People, I mean, he. Yeah, dude, leave the guy alone, man. He I know. follow the Cardinals on Twitter or whatever. I saw, when, when we started to get to the the portion of the draft where we were talking about who was getting unfollowed on Instagram, I just fucking turned it off it and started the, watching Game of Thrones reruns. It was like the yeah, it was like that weekend or the and then the, this whole last week with just the stupid takes, man. People just oh. can't let it go. Are you are you caught up on Game of Thrones, by the way? Yes. Yeah, Game of Thrones spoilers, anyone? Uh, what are your thoughts on 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 our our girl Arya Stark? Just just fucking just just dive bombing the Night King there at the end of that episode. The only thing I wish they would have done two things on this episode. I wish they would have done was I, can we actually see what's going on? Yeah, that's obviously the biggest complaint for sure. If there's an, if I can find it, we can throw it up in the show notes too. There's an article where some. Someone clipped a bunch of scenes and high and like and yeah they they did it. I found that on Reddit. They 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 brightened everything up and they slowed it down. And there was a bunch of stuff in there oh, that man. if you can find that and attach that, that'd be great too. Dude, the CGI stuff in that episode was fucking wild. Like it's just like revolutionary stuff. But it's it's like nobody could see it. Like I rewatched it when I initially watched it at six here on the West coast, it was still bright outside. I had my shades drawn and I knew it was going to be dark. So I pumped up the brightness on my TV and I was, man, I was still having trouble seeing it, but I was watching it at peak time on HBO go. I rewatched it again, like, like a couple of days later, me and my wife. And we did it at like eight o'clock when it was dark, we turned off all the lights and I had it on like a different setting on my TV and I could see it way better and it looked really cool. And I, and I saw a lot of the stuff that I missed in the first go round. And I know the uh, cinematographer has come out and defended it and saying, Oh, it's, you know, people have their TV set wrong. And it's like, like it's the same. I mean, I get what they were going for. He's called the night King. He's not the day King or slightly dark King. You know, he's the night King. <laughs> But at the same time, you know, if you look at like Helm's Deep and Lord of the Rings, like it was dark as shit, it was raining, and you could still see everything. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I feel like there should have been some kind of happy medium there where they portray the darkness and that it was it like they couldn't see a lot, but actually let us see it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I I already knew going in because we kind of we I didn't think I don't think we watched it till about seven and so by that point everyone was like oh, on Twitter I was like oh fuck you knew yeah you already kind of knew you knew so it, we yeah. got to that scene where the the red woman was um, going through the you'll you know you'll put down the green eyes the red right eyes, the and the blue eyes, eyes yeah and then she sent her on her way you and knew exactly like, what was coming <laughs> we're not gonna see Arya for about fifteen or twenty minutes and then she's gonna come in at the end and kill the Night King. Um, so that kind of already ruined it for me in that regard. But I would have liked them to shown how she got to that point. Yeah, because I think I think they sh I think they showed her wandering through the library, you know, stealthily to remind us that she's like Solid Snake from from Metal Gear Solid, where the dude can just sneak everywhere and nobody notices. Yeah. I think that was to remind us that she, that she was like the stealth ninja, and I think that was what we're supposed to assume is that she just fucking got in a cardboard box and started going from one end of Winterfell to the other and, and, and just snuck up on the Night King. Yeah, I would have liked them to like actually shown how she did it. Um, I, I was I, I was shocked we didn't get a Bran Stark uh, 
like flashback, you know, where like in season six where he was going back to Winterfell. I thought we were going to get a little bit of that. Like what exactly was the dude doing? He was chilling in his in his wheelchair, sipping a cocktail, like waiting for the Night King while while Daenerys is. Yeah, Daenerys is fucking flying around. Jon's fighting dragons. Arya's getting her ass kicked, and you know Sam is like, he's he's like chilling under a a, a, a just horde of walkers, like a like he's laying in, and taking a nap with a blanket. He's got like a blanket of walkers on top of him, but somehow he survived. I I don't know. There's a lot of nitpicking in the episode, but like overall, like I mean, really. People, a lot of people were. Yeah, it was. It, you know, me and my wife were talking about it. I think expectations was the biggest thing. Was we knew that a battle episode with the Night King was coming in this episode, so it was like, oh, it has to be incredible. And when you hype something up in your head for uh, months, it's never going to live up to that hype. So I think it had a little bit of that going for it. I feel like episode five, where people are not necessarily expecting a huge battle, and I think I think there's going to be some shock in that episode. So hopefully we get that. Yeah, there's still at least one more battle. Um, I, I didn't really have any outside those two things, the, the visual and the yeah kind of drawing out the Arya story a little bit deeper in that episode. I didn't have any complaints, but I thought it was great. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I was on the edge of my seat. I was yeah. standing up a lot of the episode, so it you know it was it was intriguing television. That's that's what you want out of it. Tonight's going to probably be kind of a letdown after that. I don't know. Uh, there, tonight's going to be like the post-battle. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be uh, similar to like, not necessarily episode two because it was like a lead up to a battle, but it's going to be in that same vein where it's just going to be a lot of talking and moving around. Yeah, but you never but know. It's, it's another it's another 80, 85 minute episode. Yeah, episode. eighty. Every the last three are all like 80 minutes, so they're all long. All right, enough Game of Thrones talk. I think that it's a good spot that to... includes our all-22 breakdown of Game of Thrones. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> all right, everyone, thanks again for listening uh, to this week's episode of Schemecast. Again, I'm Jay. Find me on Twitter at uh, JayMoreNFL. And I'm Rich. Find me on Twitter at RichJMadrid. All right, everyone, have a good weekend, and go Johnny Snow. That's right.